Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We're recording at the incredible Wheatwood Hall Hotel Podcast Studio. This is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma. We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex professional rugby league player and captain and now I guess I'm a bit of a podcaster, speaker, actor, writer, entrepreneur. I'm still working all that out but at Mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose, resilience and what I believe is the new success inner peace. That sounds good. If you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you, it might be time to step up. If you want to start your journey with us, you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash counselling. Mentality will help you change your mind. How you change your life, well, that's up to you. William, it is amazing to have you on, my friend. Amazing to have you have you on. After we've been introduced quite recently, we've um, we've been trading texts, we're trading messages, trading ideas. But it's amazing to get you on, mate. And I really, really wanted to talk to you as someone who is a coach of high performers, is a high performer yourself. I would love to get into that subject with you mate and break it down and understand your journey towards it understand your journey towards that that concept of high performance how it's changing um and also your own journey too mate so it's great to have you on brilliant thanks for having me yeah i'm looking forward to this it's um i've looked at your work as well at a distance um stevie and um i you know we know your story and we've talked about your story and i just think Wow, how, how do you, you know, I deal with a lot of footballers that are, um, and a few rugby players that are coming to the end of their career with a planned descent, call it, in the last kind of year or two of their career. A couple of premiership footballers, particularly right going through that now. And that is hard enough for them, you know, with the grief. But for what you went through with the sudden kind of, almost like right at the peak of your career, you know, lead pulled out, that that is incredible in itself, I think. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's what exactly why I wanted to speak to you and and share your message, and share the work that you do. You know, as as a possibility, I think I think we are moving forward now. I think in terms of the work or the lack of work that that we have put in the past when it comes to mental health and high performance, I think it's changing. And I think we're evolving, and um, you're someone who represents that for me, Will. Um, so, could you tell us, mate? You've, you, you've, you've, I've got the book. I've got your book, mate. I'm creating your own life story. And you have got your own story, mate. And uh, there's a massive chapter in, in that story, which I think is incredible, um, which set you off on this purpose, on this passion, mate. Can you tell us a bit about that experience that you had before um, fully launching yourself into this, mate? I think I think the thing is to remember that that you know just to give it a bit of context I think all change shift you know transformation transition usually has a big lead up um 
you know, over months, might even years, even decades before we shift into a new paradigm. And I think what the context is at the moment, we have all, before I kind of get into my story, I think we've all gone through the biggest traumatic event of, of modern history for hundreds of years. It's called a pandemic. And we are, the way I explain it, we were in this tunnel, weren't we, for two years. And it was a deeply stressful, uncertain, uncomfortable, life-threatening, literally, event that we didn't know how. It was like an apocalyptic movie, wasn't it? Yeah. None of us had dealt with it. Adults were struggling enough. God knows, we're only seeing the ramifications of what the kids are, have been going through and thinking and processing now. So I think the context is that, that if big shifts are going to come after massive change, um, it happened for me in 1999. And, you know, I had a really good corporate life. I, I worked in, um, the, funny enough, the brick industry of all industries. Um, that's how I kind of found myself sort of. And we used to deal, I used to deal with all the major house builders. So if you think of like Red Row and Persimmon and Barrett's, I was dealing with the directors of those companies. And, um, and so were other people in my company as well. But it, it was a, a blessed life in that I'd got, you know, I'd come from nothing like my brothers. We'd had a really bad upbringing. My dad was like to drink a bit too much. And it got to, you know, a, a phase of sort of 16, 17 year old where you kind of realize that no matter what your background, you can do really well with graft, hard graft and being honest and giving people what they want. So I quickly moved my way up for uh, the builders merchants into a brick company and then quickly through several promotions over several years to the point that I was running a big region, the Southwest um, of, of Britain. And, um, you know, I had what I thought in my early thirties, everything. So I, I call it that stage where I was kind of outwardly rich, but inwardly poor. So I had everything externally. We were having big kind of 20,000 pound, even it sounds gross, even me kind of going back to that place now, but you know, a big holiday would be a 20 grand holiday to Florida with the kids, you know, new car every year, you know, different little mini breaks. But the problem is what I realized at that time, there was a growing discontent that was starting to grow. This don't come out of nowhere, by the way, Stevie, we know it's growing inside of us. And there was this discontent that there's something missing in my life. Didn't quite know what it was. Couldn't articulate it. A lot of people feel this before the pandemic, by the way, because obviously we've been coaching now quite a number of years. So this is a thing that's growing for more of us. We get more and more clients that are kind of feeling there's something not right about my life, but I haven't quite worked it out yet. And I think what happened in 1999 is that I was getting more disillusioned with my life. I was looking for more adventure, spending more money. Because the problem with money, you know, having a good job in whatever career and having money, the problem is it it kind of papers over the cracks, doesn't it? Kind of gets rid of the problems. And what I used to do, my drinking was getting, you know, we were doing light, light kind of, you know, rec- recreational drugs. We were doing drink because you, you're looking for more adventure, more kind of excitement to bring back into the 80 hour insane hours a week that you were working. You know, we, I was taking clients away abroad to world cups, you know, to tournaments, you know, because we had the money. We were getting the biggest house builders buying bricks off of us. And, and, you know, we had an unlimited budget. 
problem problem is my life is kind of spiraling out of control. You're playing a bullshit game with yourself that everything's okay. Everyone in the outside world thinks it is okay, but it's not. And then like so often happens, I kind of learned this now in retrospect, is that when your life don't seem to be going in a um, in the right direction. It's almost like this invisible force. I mean, everyone's got their own beliefs about what is out there and whether there's some other, you know, divine or sort of, you know, is there, do they believe in a God? Do they believe in kind of a life force? I'm not here to kind of judge anyone whether they are or, or you know, are or against. But it's funny that a near-death experience, which I'm kind of kind of explain now, most near-death experiences seem to come along. This is what the research shows. Evelyn Valerino and Kenneth Ring, a guy who produced a book called um, Lessons from the Light, they interviewed over 30,000 near-death experiences. And what they found overwhelmingly is that most near-death experiences seem to come along at a person's part of their life where they needed to course correct. They were going radically off course and they needed a wake-up call. That's what wake-up calls are, near-death experiences. And and I think what I've looked at with the two years of the pandemic, because we've coached a lot of people through the pandemic. Suddenly, you can imagine our email and mobile never stop ringing, you know, because, you know, never before we've been, never been more wanted, me and my wife, Jane, or needed. And so, you know, I was coaching sometimes 30, 40 people a week, which is insane to even think about it. You know, I was burnt out. I was crushed at the weekend. weekend. We were having to walk up Dartmoor every weekend just to kind of de-stress. But but what I'm starting to look at now is that if near-death experiences, which I'm going to explain with mine, are big things, I think what we've gone through with the pandemic is a mini near-death experience not for one individual, for eight and a half billion people on the planet. So going right back to 1999, you know, I was cycling um, um, close to Dawlish in Devon on the south coast. There's a lovely seawall for anyone that's been down there. And pedaling along like I used to, I wasn't home very much, to be honest, Stevie, but when I was home, um, to get rid of the stress, because there was no better way of of closing down your emotions and stop your busy thoughts, then exercise, particularly extreme exercise, where you hurt yourself. That's where I believe a lot of people use actually extreme sports and extreme exercise. You know, like we all know people that, oh yeah, I run 10 miles every night. What? You know, and I do extreme sports every other weekend. And and I truly believe there's an element, not all, but there's an element of them that are using their physically, you know, the, the pain of their physical body to shut down their thoughts and feelings. That is yeah. an overwhelming thing. And that's what I used to do. That's what I used to do. So I was playing semi-professional football at the time. And so I was quite fit. And 20 foot above the water, out of nowhere, this freak wave came across, knocked me off my bike, tumbling down into the water, freezing cold water. It's April, so it's really cold. Um, very quickly, you know, I'm, I'm sort of punching the air because I'm thinking, yeah, I've survived. And very quickly, next wave kind of slammed me into a 20 foot high algae covered wall. And next one came in sort of 10 seconds later, next one come in. And I quickly realized if I don't get my shit together, this is like curtains. So, um, I could see that if I could swim out to, you know, 
50, 60 meters, I could kind of, where the water was a lot calmer, I'd be all right. So I did that. And of course, even by then, you know, you're starting to lose context of time. I'm starting to hallucinate a bit. You know, the hypothermia is starting to kick in, you know, because you're literally fighting for your life. I won't go right into the detail because it's quite a lot of what actually happened in the water. But, you know, all kind of in and out of consciousness, all kind of going through all the things um, that you realize you should have done in your life. A lot of self-shame, a lot of guilt. I mean, it's the, quick, the best way I can probably describe it, Stevie, is that if someone knocked on your door now and said, Stevie, we want to see you for a minute. And you're like, yeah, okay. Oh, can you just come into this, you know, come into this uh, room and the room door shuts behind you and someone literally says to you with a holding a ticking, you know, ticking time bomb mm-hmm. sort of says you've got about one or two hours um, left of your life and that's it. You're not going to be able to ring anyone, say goodbye to anyone. This is it. It's just you and your thoughts and feelings in that room for two hours. Well, that's what it was kind of like in the water. So you can imagine how much overthinking you're doing. You know, all the self-shame, should have done that. You know, what music didn't I play in my life? Because there's nothing, there's nothing better than facing your own demise and going through in your head on your own all your shoulds. <sighs> You know what I mean? It's just unbelievable. So it, all of these weird stuff sort of happened in the water. Luckily, luckily, right near the end, and I knew I was near the end because I'm starting to go in and out of consciousness. Um, gone through all the, the tra- trauma. I'd actually reached a sense of inner peace that this is my time. I'm going to, I'm going to die. And that was a lovely place, actually. It was like a meditative, you know, meditation practice. I'd, I'd gone through hell before that. You know, in what turned yeah. out two hours, which seemed like two weeks, by the way. Every second seemed like a, an hour. Um, cause you pretty much know it. And it's dark, freezing cold. All my organs are starting to shut down. And the one thing that kept me going, I looked up towards the town and I could see a, a spire that was lit up next to, um, uh, well, the church, which was next door to where we lived. And I could actually see in the distance, my house, because we had a three-story townhouse, I could actually see my house with the top light on, knowing that my kids are going, doing their bedroom too. And I could see them, but they can't obviously see me. And I'm thinking, they don't know that their father is dying now. And then all these weird kind of thoughts go through your head. You know, my daughter's going to grow up with someone. My ex-wife's going to marry someone with a million pound of insurance. So, of course, they're going to have a lovely life, no stress. They're going to live the life that I would always want. My girls are going to be given away by someone if they get married. So there's all this kind of weird stuff going on in your head. And I, sort of, I kept this very kind of thin, you know, wedge of hope that I could kind of survive. And then, you know, blow me you know, I was just about right at the end and I heard this voice. Anyway, it turns out to be a guy that had spotted me. He was waving frantically from the kind of quayside. Um, and, um, you know, and, you know, to cut a long story short, he'd borrowed a telescope that very day, um, been saying to his friend for nine months, um, can you lend me the telescope? And on the very afternoon of the evening that I went in the water, He'd set his telescope up to look at the moon, went away to make a drink, came back and thought, that's a bit strange, the telescope's dropped, looked at the telescope and um, lo and behold, where he looked through, he thought it was birds thrashing around. 
it was ahead. So, of course, he called us, you know, he kind of called the services, you know, again, I'll kind of fast forward, you know, the ambulance turns up, they managed to kind of haul me in, almost like a, a mackerel. Um, that's where I busted all my ribs. Um, it was a bit sort of touch and go. They rushed me to the hospital half an hour away, you know, half an hour away in Torquay. And, and that's where they've got to bring your blood, you know, get your blood um, temperature back up again because it's quite dangerous level. And I can remember after all of that, the next morning, waking up with my ribs all kind of strapped up, um, looking out towards Torquay and Torquay Hospital. Uh, and there was a guy next to me. And he had one of these trolleys with all the liquid drips and that everything on it. And um, we never actually spoke, um, but I kind of looked at him and he looked at me. And, you know, like sometimes you don't need words to kind of express and share a feeling. And I just remember thinking to myself, I'm going to change the rest of my life. This is this has got to be a point now that it was getting so bad that, that this has got to be my wake up call. Now, in Disneyland... Everything would be great afterwards, and that would be the point that you change your life. What the science says, and what my experience showed me, I went for another year and a half of actually getting worse. My drinking problem got worse, you know, still doing the drugs, still doing bad ways of living. Because what tends to happen after a near death, it can be so traumatic and so stressful. The awakening process is too much to, to take on board what you've gone through bit like any post-traumatic stress event, you do not change the next day. You change a year, possibly. Some people don't even change. They, they end up, you know, just not changing. Everything kind of was going tits up and kind of downhill up to about a year and a half. And we we were taking a load of clients over to uh, Amsterdam for, a, for the European Championships. And England were playing. And we went over to watch a game with a load of clients Again, a lot of drinking, a lot of drinking, you know, a lot of bad stuff throughout the day. And I'm sat in this bar at three o'clock in the morning. And literally, I swear on my heart that it was like I suddenly sobered up. A thought come into my head. Where it came from, I don't know. And literally the thought said, Bill, this is not who you are or where you're meant to be. And in that moment, it was like the whole, you know, 50 light bulbs all suddenly crashed down on me. And I realized I'd had this miracle that had literally happened a year and a half before. But rather than take that and change my life, I was actually making my life worse and killing myself. And it was at that very moment that I started a new path. And I was really quiet on the way back on the plane decided a year or two after that to kind of come out of the industry and get into coaching and I was really fascinated with personal development and and you know and that really kick-started the whole journey which has kind of ended up where I am today wow I mean that's some story mate some story and it's some wake-up call a few wake-up calls in there um and so how did you transition, mate, into you know this 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 new book that you've got, um, of of to create your own life story, right? Because that's what we all do as humans. We the, the information, the best way that we understand information is stories. It's through narratives. It's through um, it, it has the ability to shift us, doesn't it? You know, like just like your story has there. So the premise of of coaching. 
And this book, which is a, a self-tool, basically, to take you through that, what is that to you? What, what does this book mean to you? I think the process of self-development coaching is that, um, you know, f- first of all, get it, get it right at the top. We're going to do the work, whether the work is working on ourselves to improve our life or mop up the disastrous consequences of not being conscious and not living a good life. So we're going to put the work in anyway. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Some, some people take a whole lifetime to work that out. I kind of worked that out after my near death or 18 months after my near death that, hang on a minute, either put the work in on mindset and body and soul and spirit and and good stuff, either do the work up front and create the life you want to, or if I'm unconscious and I keep doing, you know, living the life that I did before the near death, I end up going to spend most of my time mopping up the life that I don't want. It kind of sounds almost stupidly simplistic, doesn't it? But we don't quite get that, do we? We don't quite get it. So what I've come to realize on my journey is that you have an event. Now, for me personally, it might be my near death. For most of the planet, it's a pandemic. Then the science and my own experience, so you could look at the whole or just me as an individual, the science then shows that we don't go from the event to all the good stuff, like me and you have talked about before, the old island life. That's no longer working for me. I want to go to a new island life, different ways of living, different behaviours, different habits, different kind of actions, think about myself in a different way, doing a different job. We don't go from old island to new island What they don't teach you, or we don't teach ourselves, is that in between there was something we called the dark night of the soul. And the dark night of the soul problem stage is that it's like a no man's or no woman's land in that, you know, we know we want to leave the old island behind. We know the kind of vision, the goals and objectives that we want to go to. What we're not prepared to do is the uncomfortable, unfamiliar unknown uncertain bit in the middle where it's confusing it's heart-wrenching it's fearful and that's the dark night of the soul that's the bit in between that i went through that's the bit that you've gone through and are going through you know anyone that has had a big traumatic event and i truly believe like scaling it back up to the eight and a half billion people that have experienced pandemic now mini death experience i think that that's what society is going through at the minute that it's so, it was so extreme, that post-traumatic stress event, that we're now in the kind of in-between stage. Now, if we kind of get hold of our minds and decide intentionally where we want to go, what we're not going to let into our world, media, you know, bad stuff, get caught up in the drama. If we get very intentional, what the science shows overwhelmingly is that we move into the next stage on the other side of the bridge, the new island, which is a really something lovely called a post-traumatic growth. So it means we grow from all the trauma that we've gone through as long as we're prepared to go through the storm. And I think what the book kind of shows and what um, I've kind of worked out is that First, first of all, you have to get very, very clear. You know, it's about, I could give you all the tools on behavior change, managing your emotions, dealing with your inner critic, the rest of it. But first of all, 
the first stage of when we really get deliberate, call it deliberate, and get committed to a process of developing ourselves, personal growth, I think we've got to get clarity. We've got to get clear. What do, what do I mean by that? We, we've got to get clear on who we are, identity, because a lot of us don't actually know who we are. We're so caught up in the culture scape, we actually haven't thought about who we really are. You now know, you've probably given more time, Stevie, same as I did after my big experience, you've probably given more thought since, you know, since your event in the last, you know, couple of years than ever before. Who am I? Where am I? And that's a big one. Where Number two finger, where am I? You know, um, so basically what's going on. Number three, what do I really want? It's the number one coaching question. It's the number one question in sports, you know, when your team want to go out and set, set the team up. You know, what is our intention? What do we really want? That's the middle, middle. And the fourth one that I've come to learn over the years, if you took your forefinger, you know, your ring finger, who do I want to become on the way to getting what I want? Who do I want to become? So do I want to enjoy the journey, really enjoy the experiences, or is my life going to be just a continual look at the next mountaintop accolade? And where I found this out that this four finger is so important, I've coached a number of people, but particularly interviewed a number of Olympians who have ended up spending most of their life looking for that peak, which might be the Olympic gold. You know, and then they get the Olympic gold and realize that they wake up the next day and I didn't feel any different. I thought I was going to feel different with the gold medal. I even sleep with the gold medal around them. And I know so. I spoke to a gym, American gymnast about this. And she said, I'd spent from what, six, seven years old up to my 20s, finally trying to get to, to China, which was 2008 Olympics, won the gold, woke up on the Sunday morning and realized nothing's changed. And she said it was almost like a, a near-death experience in that she suddenly realized she'd given up so much to reach that point and kind of realized it wasn't going to pay her at the, at the toll. And this is where I've kind of come up with this understanding that, and I try to share this with my clients all the time, is that I'm not going to let you. So if I'm, doing, if I'm coaching a footballer, rugby player, MP, influencer, we're all humans at the end of the day, we're all humans, whether we're performing to high standards at the top of our game or not. But I will say to people, I'm not going to allow you to call it high performance if it comes at the expense of your relationships, your mental health, your physical health and your emotional well-being. If it comes at a consequence, I'm not going to let you call that. You can call it what you want. I'm not going to call it high performance because it's not. If, if it smashes up all of your body, mind, mental health and your, your significant relationships, which we all know, friends and clients, that this has happened to, it's not high performance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so great that you're touching on all those things. A lot of it is self-awareness and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that middle messy confusing place as well because um, I definitely relate to it you know I definitely relate to it and it comes come in and out of phases in my life you know um, and I think there's always been that sort of deep knowing of, of 
an unraveling or a sort of a, um, transitioning point, you know, to 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 develop into something else or just into a deeper version of myself. Um, you know, I think I, I think about sort of my early career, and you mentioned the relationships, and there is something in psychology, um, and and our counsellor John Bell um, brought this up to me. It, it's something to do with it's a rigid. It's like an obsessive, rigid striving paradox, basically. And, and it, it touches on the fact that as an athlete or as a high performer, these people that, that are focused on these peaks and these missions and goals, they're almost like so overcome by the need and necessity to get to this point that they almost have this um, effect on the rest of the stuff around them that... They're willing to sacrifice it, you know. They're willing to sort of damage and lose friends, lose connections, lose healthy relationships to get to this this end point. It's not an end point; it's just a, a literal point in your life, just like any other point in your life. And um, so, it, it it is this mindset, it is this sort of this um, mode that we get into, which is um, is quite unforgiving, you know. And and I've had to learn you know, how to actually have a, a proper relationship, you know, with, with Natalie, my partner. And I saw something on Instagram today and it was by Tim Ferriss, who, who's been a big sort of player in, in any sort of shift that I've had. Um, but it, it was it was referring to the fact that the grass isn't always greener in another place. It's greener where you water it. Um, you know, and it's like thinking about just your experience and thinking about who we are, you know, thinking about who do I want to become on the way to this, 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 obviously you still achieve goals, still go and do that. But, you know, who, who is it that, that we are wanting to embody and that we are wanting to become? Do, do you find, Will, that sometimes people don't really know what they want? I, I think if you take all those four fingers and I'm going to mention the fifth one there as well, but the thumb. But if you take all them four fingers, we're, we're all mostly sprinting through our life, trying to achieve, trying to be more, do more, achieve more, win more, you know, succeed in more. We're so fixated with that, with the race, that we, number one, we don't know who we are. We know what culture tries to tell us who we are, because advertising has a good old go at that. Um, um, and winners, you know, influencers the same. You know, we get we we make role models into gods, and you know, you and me know people who look great from the outside. They they look like they've got the perfect life, but you know, when you sort of strip the you know the, the initial paint off and look under the bonnet, it's like it can be quite scary. You know, I've I've coached people many times over the last few years who I've gone through a crisis coaching session with them, and an hour later they were posting something almost like a Disney life. And you're like, I mean, admitted that's in the early part of our coaching because they'll quickly come to stand that they've got, you know, the big thing, they've got to be authentic if they're going to carry yes. on coaching. And they've got to be transparent and vulnerable. Otherwise, there's no point in us coaching, you know. Um, so the, the number one identity finger, the number two, where am I? Where am I is really about looking at, you know, what is going on around me? What's working and not working, you know, not working? What, what am I tolerating? It's a great word, Stevie. You know, what am I tolerating yeah. in myself 
or others, my own BS behaviours or other people letting them encroach on my boundaries. I'm being too much of a people pleaser. And, you know, the number three finger is a big one. You know, it's such a simple question, but most people today could not honestly sit down and tell you what their real goals, aims, objectives, all the same shit, um, intentions, what they really want. What do you really want? If we just started with that one and taught people to just concentrate on that one, we'd be doing well. But then the fourth one is kind of probably 3% of the population. Who do I want to become on that journey? Who do I want to become? Do I want to become a nice person that's giving, compassionate, empathic, and make sure I don't have a winner, you know, win at all costs mentality, mm. which me and you know people like that. Mm. Um, we've probably both been it at one time of our life. You know, let's not, you know, let's not try to push it out there. We've been there. Um, we've experienced the costs. We've experienced the consequences, you know, and the, and the bleed over. Um, so if you look at those four f- f- fingers, most people haven't even touched one or two of them. One of people, and that's what the pandemic's done. You know, I think in a good way, there have been good things about the pandemic. It's, it's got people to slow down, step back, reflect, look at their life, analyze their life, and go, I'm not doing a four hour round trip in Leeds or Birmingham or Manchester to work every day. I'm not doing that shit. It's this life's too precious. My relationships, I'm not getting in at work at eight o'clock. I've got nothing left to give to my kids and my husband or wife it's just not it's insane and if they want to look at you know the papers are full every day of um where have the missing million people gone from work i tell you where they're gone the ones that aren't chronically ill have basically decided to either give up the bullshit culture life and, and live off less at least have a quality life with proper relationships or they've just decided that the cost to their mental physical well-being is is too great so, you know, there is no dilemma. There's no kind of mystery. It's just we're trying to pretend it's a mystery. No, a million people have kind of woken up <laughs> um, to, to a different life and um, all started their own businesses, which I know a lot. You know, the figures of people starting their own businesses are higher now than they've ever been as, wow. as, on, as entrepreneurs. Well, that, that kind of dovetails in as well, doesn't it? Now, mm. the, the fifth finger, which is really important in personal development, which I tell to clients is the fifth finger is what methodology, what um, rules, life rules, what practices, what values, what standards are you going to use to measure? So use your thumb as your measuring stick. Michael Gervais, who I've followed a lot for a number of years, I've took a lot of his work. He's an amazing guy, top psychologist yeah. in the world for sports. He's coached more uh, NFL and um, uh, basketball winners in America than anyone else, him and Pete Carroll. And what he talks about is personal philosophy. Once we know who we are, where we are, what we tolerate, what we won't, um, what we really desire, um, what our relationships are important. Personal philosophy is once you get that sorted out, and that's your thumb, your personal philosophy to standards to live by. Once you get that bit, everything else can be measured against it. Because if you took relationships and the amount of hours you're going to put at work, if you put all these different standards, boundaries is a big one, personal boundaries, people pleasing, FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. Mm. If we've got no measuring stick, 
call it a standard to measure things in our life against, how do we know where we are? <laughs> you know what I mean, it's accountability, isn't it? I mean, sports elite, you guys know, and the ones I coach, you guys know that you're constantly having your metrics analysed, your standards, your goals, objectives are constantly looked at and in relation to the context of where are you getting closer to it. And then when you get close to it, yeah. you set another one. People yep. every day, they're just getting up, going to work and not having any kind of purpose or passion are kind of lost in the, you know, almost like a mind spaghetti inside of them where they're just, they don't know who they are, where they're going, what what's kind of going on. And um, I think we've got to get to a point where we take personal development seriously. And that's what you've got into in a, you know, in a really good way the last few years. You know, we've got to take it more seriously because... If you don't work on, you know, if you don't work on your mind, your mind will work on you. I, I think it's it's so true, and and I think what we've got to start realizing is that, you know, for years, you know, it was all about our craft, wasn't it? We learned our craft. Um, Thirty, forty years ago, big gyms, you know, giant size, you know, Virgin type um, gyms started, um, you know, starting up. And the last few years, and I think the next few decades, are going to all be about mindset. They're all going to be about mindset. I think the old days of learning that job 200 years ago from the Industrial Revolution are over. And it's all going to be pointed in the next few decades about how are we going to work on our mind. I like that. Yeah, it's like the focus on the craft. It's like literally applying yourself to the craft. Without, oh, well, you, you don't even apply yourself. You just you just submerge into the craft, don't you? And, and and you work on that and excel at that. And you know, when I started to sort of look at this stuff and 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 started to understand that you were even more powerful and even more um, resilient and even better working together as a team when you actually applied yourself you know, away from just the game, you applied your personality, you applied your values and you all work together on this, in this unison where everyone is, is mixing in this melting pot. Um, you know, that, that's when, when I saw such a, a powerful shift. Um, and, and now I think that's starting to happen. I think people are starting to take it seriously. And I think people are also starting to, um, like you say, to, to, I think, Physical's the first, you know, physical's the first more part. And then you move to to the part which defines all the rest of it, all of it. You know, you, you, you're looking at the the thing that actually dictates your perception instead of just how it looks on the outside, because that's just what, it's just literally what we have to work on. We have to work on how we receive life, how we give life, um, because anything else, anything else can be misjudged. And like you say, your mind will work on you and it will, it'll, it'll uh, put things in the way, you know, and it'll, it'll keep you unhappy. It'll keep that discontent, you know? Um, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's great to hear that you're doing this. And do, do you see like, is there, was, was this happening before COVID or were people coming to you to say like, Look, I want to achieve more. I want to earn more money. I want to get this promotion, or you know, is the is the is the a variance in 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 the sort of 
the clientele's desires to work with you, you know, or has, or has it always been happening? I think it's always been happening. Um, very, very, if any, people. In fact, I can honestly say in 10 years, Stevie, I probably only had one or two people out of hundreds, hundreds, who actually said, I want to earn more money. So that says something, doesn't it, straight away? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So they, they want more balance. They want more relationship understanding. They want to manage their emotions. They want to manage their inner critic, you know, that self-talk that beats them up, which might be an old program from their childhood. Um, they want to get a grip of their life because they feel like it's all over the place. They want to ground it. They want to center it. Um, and I, and I think what I've noticed the difference since funny, I forgot to ask this on the podcast last week. I think the difference with the, what the clients are looking at now, they want more harmony, but they want more passion and purpose. I think a lot of a lot of people that I've noticed that have been coming to us during and after the pandemic are people that have kind of got everything materialistically. They've got that job they always wanted. They've got the money. They've got this. They've got that. Um, but they're they're lacking severely in passion and purpose and. If you could put that into one or two sentences, I think the best way to look at, you know, these are big words. And I think the best way to describe passion is what lights you up from the inside. It's what really makes your light bulb go up. You know, that passion, that love of, of life, you know, it's enthralling. Yep. That is passion. That is, because it's different things for different people. And the secret, the secret, um, it's finding out what yours is, <laughs> what yours is. Cause it's not, the, it's not the same as anyone else's, is it? No. Um, um, so what your passion is first and then the purpose put in a sentence really is what do you want to give back to? And I think what we have to be careful of these things, passion and purpose, we learn a lot from being born on day one. You know, we are programmed a lot through our life behaviors and habits. But I truly believe, you know, passion, which is linked to love and purpose, which is to serve, to give something back. I truly believe we come into this planet hardwired with these capacities. Because if you watch a kid, you don't need to teach a very small child about love and passion and purpose. They want to help their friends. They want to do loving things that make them feel good. Now, they will learn off teachers and parents and other kids, but there is something that you can see even from a kid from a very young age that they've got that. They've hardwired. They've come in with that. We don't come in blank canvases, I believe, because these are inherent DNA that's woven into the human person, you know, the evolving person. And I think that need to give back, to be of service to, to do some greater good for the for the collective whole, I think is a magical thing. And I think nowadays, coming back to the point, is that I think and too many people are not touching, they're not feeding their needs, because we've all got needs, haven't we? I, I think they're not feeding their needs of their passion needs in everything that looks like. And especially their purpose, which is to give back. I think if you're not feeding either, you're quite spiritually, emotionally barren. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Would you kind of lean into that? I, I, I'd agree, mate. I'd agree. Um, I think there's two things that came to mind as you were speaking. And um, one of them is 
that ability of sort of reclaiming your mind and sort of actually taking some governance back um, instead of being hostage to your mind. You know, I was I was sat in the car um, going to pick up Natalie uh, the other day and um, I'd gone down this certain road which had a, a certain amount of 30 minutes of traffic when it should have been one minute. And it's always it's always a, a test. And, and I think as I've evolved over the last few years, that voice or that inner critic or that sort of like um, tantrum that you can have inside and a lot of people act it out um, and I used to act it out but I think over the years like it's just got quieter and quieter and softer and softer and, and like almost like dissolving a little bit you know like you can you can sort of feel it. and it's just like it happens as a, as a, as a, as a bit of energy and then it sort of dissolves a little bit because you've been aware of it and you're not going to react to it. So that's like one part of it. And and then I think the the purpose and, and the the passion, um, I, I completely feel like it. That's that's the magic when they're working together. You know, when when your passion is actually serving a purpose. You know, that is that is the that is the mix. Which is, and for a lot of years, my passion was what we're speaking about now, you know, talking about mental health and helping people to see what they can do and helping to, to operate better. And that coupled with my passion of playing rugby was like, that's when, that's when you just, you're so content, you know, you're so happy with what's going on, you know. In flow, um, in flow, yeah. You just it, it, everything is 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 completely um, perfect. If ever there ever, ever is perfect, you know, and I think that needs to be stressed to people. They've got they they've got the ability to ex- access it, and people have got the the ability to to come across this um, this passion and, and this purpose, and you know that that is something that I've had a, quite a, a number of conversations. Uh, Bill lately about this concept of high performance you know and and you've definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of how you're seeing it changing, how you're seeing it from a coach's point of view and what you're working on, I think it's the next rung of the ladder Um, and there's something else that I want to talk about before we go into the quick fires mate about um, the trauma stuff or the somatic stuff that's something that that we we brushed upon a little bit in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, um, but it's something that I'm delving deeply into, mate. Uh, tell us a bit about that and, and how you think that couples with what we're talking about. I, I, I don't. I don't think honestly we um, that there are several things that I just think all children and young adults and youths should be taught. You know, we all talk about money management. You know. I, I could never work out, even as a kid, I couldn't work out that one of the biggest things you're going to have to learn to live with and deal with and manage throughout your whole life is money. And yet there's no teaching at school whatsoever. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I it's quite insane, isn't it? <laughs> as you grow older, you realise that's by design. You know, institutes, establishments don't want us no. to know about how to manage money. Otherwise, no one would be spending 30% interest on credit cards and you know, and all the rest of it. So if you knew about money, you know, the, the, (laughs) 
you know, yeah. the big institutions and corporates wouldn't be earning the kind of money out of us. So there's a, there's a great book. There's a great book on that, um, which worth a read called "Rich Dad Poor Dad." Oh, but brilliant, brilliant book, brilliant, brilliant book. isn't it? Brilliant book, wow. Robert. Robert, he's a good lad, and um, yeah, he's pushed it for years. It's one of the best books for um, understanding money basics. Um, and the the other point I was going to make is around emotions. You know, bringing it back to what you were saying is that we one of the biggest things we need to understand is our mindset particularly because mindset people tend to go to mind as in just yeah. their, just their head i believe that my interpretation when i'm talking to clients is our mind is our thoughts in the head and feelings in the body because if you think of it we tend to think of mind as brain but i think of mind as you know, where do you everything. feel yeah everything where, where do you feel your emotions you feel your emotions in your neck chest yeah. stomach back legs you know your body is somatically tuned in and you cannot just rely on you know your thoughts it's your feelings in the body fear fear will be felt in the body you know it will be felt in the body so i think we need to be teaching from a very young age and this is what me and jane and the group of people that we're involved with are eventually going to be doing we we set a pilot out last year for 16 to 20 year olds and we've only just been doing it over a year now but the, the success has been overwhelming because what you realize is that 16 to 20 year olds haven't got much life experience which means they've not got lots of bad programming mm. right so they've not had yeah. decades of bad behaviors and habits embedded to then yeah. break through because the hardest bit about behavior change is, is breaking through age old habits. Well, yep. youngsters have not had much programming. So they've not got many bad habits deeply embedded. Well, what we've seen in coaching is that once a youngster, and they're all young compared to me nowadays, even you as well. Um, um, <laughs> you know, tw- 20 something seems like a long time ago, Stevie. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's gone. 29 now, mate. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, 30 next year. Um, yeah, no. so, um, but what I've noticed is that youngsters, when they get the lust for learning something that's going to really benefit, you know, the reason so many people are disenfranchised and just bored at school is that so much of it just doesn't, it don't light them up or switch them on. You know, Ken no. Robinson, the, the guru who, you know, always talked about this on TED Talks, you know, the most watched TED Talk of all time is on creativity and, and yeah. children. And, um, you know, there's a reason that we need to teach people at that 16 to 18 year old when they're just old enough to start going out there. We need to teach them all about emotions because we now know I know as a coach and I know from clients and particularly this last year pilot, give kids, youngsters, 16, 17, 18, 19, the skills, the mindset and emotion skills, and they are pretty much set for the rest of their life. Does that mean they're not going to have challenges and, you know, big stuff come up? Of course they are. Are they going to still sabotage themselves? Of course. Yeah. But yeah. do you know what? When you've got those foundational skills that will last you a lifetime, hardwired and ready and prepped to go, you are not going to have um, those situations that I used to have in my 20s where I didn't have a very short fuse. This is what you were talking about years ago with, you know, talking about the car experience. You know, yeah. I didn't have much of a tolerance, didn't have much patience, and I would blow up. You know, I can remember walking off football pitches and things like that because, yeah. you know, a defender had not kind of done his job 
And there's me, the kind of prima donna, kind of, you know, in the middle of midfield captain and having a hissy fit because I weren't very good at controlling my emotions. And then I'd have fall out of weeks of, you know, having to make up with someone because I've acted like complete, you know, dig the age and, and kind of, you know, what's going on, you know, but... And then it just carries on, doesn't it? And it, you've got you build to it. manage it all from you, then. You've yeah. got to manage it. And, and, you know, this is where kind of, you know, if we had the tools to manage our emotions and deal with our inner critic, because don't forget, you know, if we're beating ourselves up in a critic self-talk, we're probably projecting that out onto others as well. That, that's the science. That's the evidence, you know. If we, all you've got to do is look at someone ranting at their friend, their partner, and the, you know, their child in the street. That's how they talk to themselves as well, by the way. It's, it's a direct mirror. And I think if we could just, you know, understand, you know, what you were saying about the somatics, somatics in the body are really emotions. And what we've got to look at is emotions are energy. If you look at the French word um, for movement, you know, emovre, you know, emotion. So the E part of emotion is really energy in motion. And if if we understand that emotion doesn't just go into an empty basement, it sits in our body. So say, for instance, give you an example, you've got a neighbor that really winds you up and gets his chainsaw out every day. And, you know, you're trying to sort of do your thing and you're trying to do your podcast and, and he's got his chainsaw. Then he's kind of got his, um, you know, his hose and he's sort of, you know, pressure you know, wash your outside. You know, we, we meet people. He's like real, that. this guy, isn't he? This yeah, guy's this real. Guy is real. He's in everyone's <laughs> he's in everyone's life, right? He's in everyone's yeah. life, right? We all know we all know that guy. And um all woman. And um so you know if you're gonna get angry about everyone, about everything, those emotions, if you don't do anything with them, aren't going to just disappear in a in a vacuous like basement. They sit underneath you. And then what you do, you're down your little lane, you know, one day, you know, have massive road rage, right? Get outside, you know, rip the guy out of the seat because he kind of nearly took you out. Before you know it, the, the green mist, the red mist has kind of cleared and you're like, what the hell am I doing? I've just ripped a guy out of his car and I'm going to smash him up and the rest of it just for jumping out in front of me. He didn't see me. And this is what projection is with emotions, isn't it? If we don't deal with the emotion that we're storing in our basement, eventually that energy just wants to, like a firecracker, wants to come out. But if we don't control it and manage it, that unexpressed, call it emotion, which is energy, will come out in often disastrous ways. And that is what road rage is. Road rage is never about the guy the woman cutting us up at the corner or the roundabout. It's about the 50 things we never dealt with that we pushed into our body somatically. And I think so much of illnesses, you know, there's a gray area at the minute. I mean, there's a term, there's a term that, that's just starting to come into the lexicon the last few years called psychoneuroimmunology. And, and what it basically is saying is that we have the ability to build and um, condense emotions into our body, right? So we can change our emotional state. Now, I'll give an example of this where this is real. 
frequently with clients, I will get them to do a meditation practice and they've had a really stressful day. I get them to close their eyes, they put their hands on their heart and I guide them to get them to go back to a happy memory from the past. So I will get them to, it might be a, having your first child, it might be getting married, it might be, you know, winning your whatever, you know, making your business successful. Whatever it is, you know, sports day for children, you know, whatever that happy moment is, I'll get people to go back there and I will talk them through and get them to feed back to me how are they feeling now in their body. And suddenly that stress has all gone in the stomach, it's disappeared in the, in the shoulders, the body's starting to kind of really relax. They're smiling. I can, you know, I'm opening my eyes. I can see them with their eyes closed. They're beaming, right, in this meditation. But this is only after like a minute or two, Steve. Yeah. We're not, we're not yeah. talking hours. And yeah. I get them to open their eyes at the end of it. And I said, hey, how was that for you? And they say, wow, I could just feel the tingling in my body. Well, we know neurochemically, you know, hormonally, we're having massive bursts of serotonin, oxytocin, dopamine, yeah. all the good reward chemicals. We've got rid of the bad ones. Well, there is no such bad ones, but the, the ones that are bad if we don't switch them off, cortisol, adrenaline. And what the point I'm trying to make to them is that you are telling yourself that you've been stressed for three days. And yet in two minutes, I've got you, you know, you're, you're 5,000 miles away. <laughs> on Zoom, yeah. right? I've got you to change your emotional state in two minutes. Turning off a top. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and so mm. neuro, you know, we do control our emotions somatically. We just tell ourselves that we can't. And, and don't forget the body eavesdrops. I've always told people, and this was an understanding from years ago, the body eavesdrops on the mind. The body is listening to everything the mind tells it. It believes it. So if you keep telling your body, I'm too fat, I'm too ugly, I'm too this, I'm too that. If you tell it enough times, guess what? It's going to believe you. And, you know, this is where body image problems come in. This is where kind of self um, confidence, self-belief, self-esteem, self-worth issues come in. If we have told ourselves that we're not worthy enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not sharp enough, we're not gifted enough, guess what? We eventually believe it ourselves. And the feelings are stored in the body. That's why we've got to make sure that, you know, when we've got stress, if we create stress, we've got to use ways of getting rid of it. And the best way is exercise, movement, some kind of Eastern practice, like whether it's Tai Chi, Qigong, um, yoga, you know, swimming, walking, you know, like you would do today, blue sky, walking, yeah. trees. Yeah. Trees are healing. We know oh, the science is overwhelming. Trees are healing. They're like a, they're like a healing bath. Mm, 100%. Mate, it's all good. It's all good. It's, 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 it's the holistic model that I think we've always been in and around, but I think now we're hearing more about trauma, hearing more about the body, just keeping the score, great book, um, that is something that we're all, all switching our attention to. And what we're going to do now, Bill, is we're going to go through some quick fire questions. I've stolen these from Mark Whittle at Take Flight. I like him. I, um, I had a podcast with him and I turned the quick fire questions that he'd usually do. Uh, to other guests, and I did it to him, and now I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on the uh, the quick fire to you, mate. Um, so I want to ask you, Bill, 
Is there one habit that you would recommend to someone to start doing? A- absolutely, journaling. 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 Yeah. Mm. And for the reason James Pennybaker, decades ago, was the psychologist that was given the role of trying to help returning veterans from the first Iraqi war. Um, psychotherapy and therapy wasn't working. You know, drugs, medication wasn't working. What he worked out is if that we can get stuff out of our head onto paper um, and start to look at it from a different, you know, third person yeah. perspective, we would start to work it. Now, journaling is not, and I have to be really clear with this, journaling is not misery memoir, right, on my mm. woes down, and it's not teenage angst. It is what patterns of behavior, what are, what thought patterns are you noticing, what feelings, when do you tend to get, um, you know, hit up when you're driving down the lane in road rage, you know, what is working for you, what's not working for you, what you're tolerating too much, what do you need to change, what your goals, it becomes your personal development buddy book. That is your journey. Yep. Yep. I like that, Bill. I like it. We've had that as well. I think Mark actually said the same. Same habit, mate. So it's up there. Um, one trait, Bill, that you have now as the successful version of yourself, that the unsuccessful version of yourself wouldn't have. I would say power hour. Power hour. So power hour. Right. So power hour will seem extreme. I've just done a big podcast for mindful mums today. Big group of mothers. The concept of a power hour is alien to them. You know, they're lucky to get 10 minutes, right? So take my, you know, take the word off an hour. If it needs to be quarter of an hour, fine. But literally the power hour concept, which me and Jane, my wife, have done for more years than I can remember now, is we do a little meditation practice in bed and, you know, in the minute you wake up. So power hour is literally, if you control the first 10 minutes, 15 or an hour as we have all our all our five daughters have left home now we've got the luxury of a proper power <laughs> yeah. hour right we've yeah too right we've done our boot camp we've earned our stripes right? you deserve it mate right, you right? five daughters five daughters right all women now um so a, a power hour can be a mixture of having a coffee meditation reading a book having a chat with your missus or your, or your partner um you know doing that meditation practice kind of listen to music the one thing you do not do in your power hour whether it's 10 minutes or an actual hour you do not start your phone off right you you keep your phone in another room or you keep it switched off i know we use it as alarms nowadays if it's an alarm get it out of the way the worst thing we can do is start with negative news negative kind of vibes it's never going to be good stuff is it right or work or it's going to be emails and that. So get rid of the phone. It will save your life. And get, a, you know, whether you're having a coffee, we have a lemon and honey and ginger tea first thing in the morning because you've got to remember your brain, that's the, the, the biggest amount of time that your brain throughout the day is going to go without liquids, water, is, is during sleep. And the worst, the worst thing you want to be doing is giving it caffeine, tea or coffee. So, you know, do that hot drink, do water, whatever it is. And okay, make your tea, your coffee, your second drink, but make the water the first one. And the best image I can kind of get you to imagine is, imagine, I call, I also call Power Hour Build Your Castle. 
start your day well and the rest of the day has a better chance of kind of staying in line think of it think of it like build the castle so every day we know there are cannonballs challenges coming at us at a rate of knots as well so your castle your being your whole life your emotional state is going to be bombarded with challenges so it is imperative first day you know first part of the day to build your castle strengthen your castle fill all the gaps in you know put the concrete in put the new blocks in strengthen it as much as you can which you which you will do with your power hour and then you are ready for the inevitable cannonballs that it's not a case of if they're going to come. Yeah. It's when they're going to come. Yeah. Now, yeah. the problem with most people, if they don't build their day up from the beginning, they start bad. They woke up with a bad mood. Because don't forget dreams. Dreams are usually the, the processing of the stuff we never dealt with the day before. So, you know, a lot of people the last few years, if you speak to dream therapists, which we know a few of, the kind of dreams people have been having the last two, three years are off the scale. Sleep yeah. problems are off the scale because of what we've not processed with the fear, pandemic, you know, life-threatening things going on. So we more than ever, if we've had a bad night's sleep and we've woke up with a bad vibe, we've got to make sure we don't feed that vibe. We've got to kind of wash it out of our system and we've got to get in a good place. Read something inspiring, watch something inspiring, have a good conversation do not read a paper, do not go on emails, do not go on your phone, social media, because that is only going to... And I'll give you an example of social media um, influencers. I coach quite a few influencers uh, and TV presenters that are on. And I noticed with a few of them a few years ago, the first thing they were doing is turning their phone on and looking at Instagram. And of course, what do you look at? You look at people's best selves, don't you? So of course, you know, this one particular Instagram client I'm thinking of now, she's on telly a lot. What she was doing, getting really depressed because she's going for a pee, having a drink, looking at herself in the mirror. Like most of us, she looks like a bag of poo in the first thing in the morning, right? Right. (laughs) Five minutes later, she's looking at Instagram at all her peers who are all looking glamorous and all their dresses and all, all the rest of it. So that comparison is literally starting your day on the wrong foot and you feel crap about yourself. We've all got insecurities anyway, but what's just what our mind does? What the mind does? The the mind, you know, power turbo charges it, doesn't it? Right. So I I quickly, within weeks, you know, I'd coach people like I do every two weeks. And you don't have to get people off their phone first thing in the morning to to realize you're gonna you're gonna massively start getting some good positive impacts within days, if not weeks. Mm -hmm. Love it. I love it. Um, what are you excited about, Bill? What's one thing that you're excited about? What I'm really excited about is is good question. Um, I'm re- I'm really I'm really excited about the work we're going to be doing in the years ahead with youngsters, with with 16 to 21 year olds, because I think that they are our future. And what we've proved to ourselves with this pilot last year is that these practices work. And I've watched people literally change their life, youngsters, and I know that they're going to be good and well set for the future. I think, how can you not get excited about that? Mate, it's, it's going to change the world because every action that they take from this point, you know, from doing this work with you, 
that, that that's that's where it is for me. I think individually we work on ourselves. Individually, you know, we have to get our shit together, and then it's gonna it's gonna affect our actions. It's gonna be like a trickle down effect in it, you know. Um, not like the one that um, they spoke about when uh, that prime minister came in for two minutes. And, uh, <laughs> I can't remember the name. Yeah. The, the, the Liz Truss economy economy trickle down effect. This is this is the one that we need. I think this is the one that we need. This this type of effect and the, uh, the one that I think actually worked. Um, but yeah, mate, that's mega. Um, but it's been ace. It's been ace having your pal, and I can't see. I can't wait to see what we'll create together, mate. Yeah, it's good. It's exciting for all of us. I'm pleased for what you guys are doing with, um, you know, mentality and, you know, I mean, the whole mentality. I think you really are doing a great thing with bringing men to find their identity because it just feels that there's insanity out there at the minute where so many youngsters and so many young men, and and they're all young men compared to me in their 20s, but I think there are so many that have kind of lost a sense of place, have lost a sense of identity. And actually, we've got to get back to who we are and and realise that we've got to work on ourselves because if we don't know who we are, society's going to have a good old go at trying to convince us that we're something else. I know, mate. It is it's, it's something that's at the top of my mind lately, and sometimes I feel a bit powerless actually about like, you know, what what is it that we can do? You know, what and, and I guess what we're talking about, everything that we just spoke about, is what we can do. You know, that's what we can control, and yeah. I don't like to dwell about stuff that I can't, can't control. You know, you're talking about bringing news into your life or going on your phone. I just don't go on my phone in the morning. I'm probably a bit useless getting back to people, but that's a cost. That I'm, I'm willing to, to sacrifice, you know. It's a good cost. Um, it's a good cost. Yeah, it, it's, it's it's something which is just I get myself into that position, you know, that power hour, and and I'm in a position where I can actually be positive in the day, you know, which is just it's just so needed. Um, but those are the things that I can control. The things that I'm seeing, I do see in the media when I have a look later on in the day, and that the politics right now is just like, it, it drives me, it drives me a little bit mad, but it's, uh, it's something that I think will, there'll be a space and time where I, I, I think I'll probably move towards it. If it feels like it keeps burning as a need inside me, you know, I, I, I won't go too much into this cause it's kind of we're at the early stage, but I'm writing a book with um, a top um, renowned psychotherapist guy called Malcolm Stern. He's well known throughout the world, does workshops all around the world. He's been around it for 30, 40 years. We're writing a book together. I've never written a book together. So this is all new to me. And so we're coming from a psychotherapist, psychoanalysis kind of coaching on my side attitude. It's really lovely. It's working out well. But what we're kind of coming to the conclusion already in the first few chapters is that what does transformation look like in a society? What does change look like? We might think it's all kind of angel wings and kind of lovely, kind of, you know, lovely stuff. But actually, any kind of seismic change, which society is going through at the moment, it is hard, it is brutal, it's confusing, it's uncertain, it's it's suffering. This looks like what we're going through, which is a kind of rebirth. You know, it, it, it feels like so much is dying and not working, which is the basically the caterpillar dying. But actually 
something has to die, an old society that was not working. And let's get it, let's get it right sharp in focus. Uh, so much as the last few decades has not been working. It's not been working for the vast majority of people. You can talk about a little elite group of people that are doing okay with the way we're working, but the vast majority is not working for the way we're working. So I think as we let go of that and, and it comes apart, it looks like everything's kind of spinning out of control, but actually we've got to see ourselves that we're not dying. You know, it doesn't seem that everything's coming off the rails. It's basically the caterpillar transforming, morphing into the butterfly. Metamorphosis. And, 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 as we know, that metamorphosis is painful. It's painful. Yeah. I think that's what we're going through now. I hope it's not a, an artificial intelligence metamorphosis, mate, no. you know, transition. You know, I think that's the thing that scares me. And, and uh, I think if we could sleepwalk into that, you know, there's a, there's a potential of that. I but agree. I think, I agree. you know, we, we've, we've got, we've got, we've got to have these conversations. We've got to do what we're doing, mate. Um, to have any sort of impact you know so thank you mate for coming on enjoyed and, it thank and, you and, and being a guest mate I will see you in the real world I'm pretty sure pretty soon mate <laughs> no. it's going to happen no it's going to happen we'll do that we've yeah. we got the lovely Sue girl who, um, who introduced us so yeah um, oh yeah. mate I know we'll, we'll, I get know. Up, we'll get up to Lee's definitely yes sir shout out to Sue girl and um We'll have to get her, we'll have to get her on sometime. We'll I would get her get on. Her. She's a she's a good girl. Yeah, no, no yeah. Stuff. She does. She does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, legend. Cheers for that, Bill. I really enjoyed it. You take care of all your good work as well.